There are figures in history who just loom larger than other figures for a variety of reasons. Uh, if you think back over history, there are names that just pop up and come to mind. For example, if you think about presidents of the United States, there's George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and everybody else, right? Not that there weren't good presidents other than those two, but those two, for very specific and good reasons, they just cast a longer shadow than all of the others. You, you, you don't have the same reaction to Franklin Pierce, right? I'm, no disrespect to President Pierce or any of his family members who may be here today, but you don't hear Franklin Pierce the same way you hear Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. There's just some people and their life, their decisions, their legacy uh, cast a longer shadow than others. This is not just true in presidents and public figures. It's true in sports. You think of any, any particular sport, tennis or or football, or soccer, or, or baseball, and there are just some figures that you remember that are iconic, we would say, for that particular sport. It's one of the reasons that some people are drawn toward memorabilia collecting, is because they know there are some figures that if you have the right card or the right piece of memorabilia, and you have their signature on it, it could be worth a lot of money. Speaking of, the Holy Grail, when it comes to baseball memorabilia and baseball cards in particular, is the T206 Honus Wagner card. I have a picture of the Honus Wagner card. There's Honus, good-looking guy. If you are expecting a kid, Honus is a good way to go. It's fairly gender-neutral, either way, Honus, you could name him Honus. Uh, the Honus Wagner card uh, represents uh, this guy who played for the Pittsburgh Pirates in the early 1900s, believed to be one of the greatest baseball players of all time. Not only that, but there were a very limited number of his cards that were produced. For, for some reason, uh, Wagner wanted them to stop production of his baseball card, depending on who you believe. One side said... It was for moral reasons. Back in the early 1900s, baseball cards came not with bubble gum, which is the way we all remember them. They came with cigarettes, tobacco. And there's one crowd that says Honus Wagner was taking a moral stand. He didn't want his card to be used to sell cigarettes to kids. And so he said, I, I don't want to be a part of that. There, there's another side that says, no, he just wanted more money for them using his uh, his likeness. I, nobody knows really what the truth is, but what we do know is there's a limited number of Honus Wagner cards that are available, and in particular the T206, which is a slightly oversized card, is so popular and so rare that in 2016, this card sold for $3.12 million, right? the highest priced baseball card ever sold Anywhere, So this is, this is the most valuable card. Honus Wagner stands far and above all of the other baseball cards. That's, that's the way life is. There's some people just, they tower over everybody else in their field, and they're iconic and recognizable. If you had baseball trading cards for the Old Testament prophets, that would be really weird. <laughs> uh, 
because I don't think they make them, and honestly, even if they made them, that would be weird. But if you did, if you, if you had the baseball trading pack of the Old Testament prophets, there would be one card, one prophet, one person that stood out above all of the others. It's a guy by the name of Elijah. Maybe some of us have heard of him. Maybe some of us know a lot about him. Maybe some of us don't know anything about him. We're going to take the next four weeks, and we're going to talk about this prophet because his shadow is longer than all of the other prophets in the Old Testament. And there's some reasons for that. One reason is Elijah was incredibly bold. He was incredibly daring. And, and probably when you think of prophet, you think, yeah, well, of course he was bold. Prophets were bold. They were fiery. That's not really the case for most of the prophets. Many of the prophets didn't want to be a prophet. Many of the prophets were like, God, do I have to? Do I have to say that to them? They were, we call them reluctant prophets. Many of them were, and they weren't necessarily fiery. They spoke the truth as God told them to speak the truth. They, they, they mostly spoke it in difficult circumstances, but Elijah, he was a whole different character. He was bold in the face of intimidation, in the face of a culture, as we're going to see, that had turned away from God, in the, in the face of kings and queens that could kill him. He was incredibly bold. And not only that, but the supernatural seemed to center around Elijah when he was a prophet. And again, you may think, yes, prophet, they all did supernatural things. Not really. Most of them, again, they just spoke for the Lord. They told the truth. Not all of them performed miracles, but Elijah did. I mean, almost everything you read about Elijah, some supernatural event is happening around him, which is one of the reasons we tend to remember him. He tends to stand out in the crowd of prophets. Another reason, Elijah never physically died. If you don't know the whole story, we'll get to this in a few weeks. He never physically dies. Instead, he's taken up into heaven in a fiery chariot. That is some kind of exit, right? Like if you can say, peace out, drop the mic, and ride away in a fiery chariot, you're going to get remembered. And we remember this guy. Because he didn't physically die... There also grew up this belief, this legend maybe, that Elijah would come back. There was always this talk among the Jewish people that Elijah's going to come back one day and the kingdom of God's going to be established and God's going to set everything right. We're just waiting on Elijah to come back. Uh, even, the, even the other prophets picked up on this language. The very end of the Old Testament, prophet named Malachi, short book, this is what Malachi says. See, speaking for God, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Now, we know that he's talking about John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, we sometimes call him. John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was preparing the way for the Messiah, and he was bold, and he was a little eccentric in the same way that Elijah was, and that's what Malachi meant. There's going to be an Elijah figure who's going to come. He's going to speak boldly. He's going to call people to repentance. He's going to tell them, you need to receive the baptism of repentance because Messiah is coming, and you're going to want to turn and follow him. And Malachi said, this is going to be like Elijah. I know some of you are expecting Elijah. Somebody's coming like Elijah. 
Jesus is talking to his, uh, to his followers one day, his disciples. And he says, who do people say that I am? And one of the answers is, some people think you're Elijah. Why? Because they thought Elijah was coming back. They, they thought that he would reappear and they thought, so they thought, well, this Jesus must really be Elijah. This, his, his fame, his reputation went years and years and years after he lived. Even today, if you ever go to a Passover meal with an observant Jewish people or Messianic Jewish people who believe in Jesus but observe much of the Old Testament rituals, if you go to a Seder meal or Passover meal, at every Passover meal, they leave an empty chair. Guess what the chair is called? Elijah's chair. They're supposed to leave the easternmost door open when they observe the Passover in case Elijah comes back for that Passover. So even today, there is this sense Elijah could come back at any time. Add to all of that the fact that during Jesus' ministry, Jesus and Peter, James, and John, they went up on a mountain to pray. And while Peter, James, and John were looking on, Jesus transforms in front of their eyes. We call it the transfiguration, big long word, transfiguring. In other words, he changed form. The Bible says his, his face uh, shined like the sun and that two figures in brilliant white appeared with him. One was Moses. Guess who the other one was? Elijah. Yes, we have this appearance of Moses and Elijah with Jesus. For, for all of those reasons, Elijah as a prophet, as a spokesman of God, his, his legend, his, his reputation, his shadow continues to be cast above all of the other prophets. Now, we're going to step into the, a story that happened 3,000 years ago, very different from today. Give me just a minute to set up the time and the context so that we can walk into the story with Elijah in just a few minutes. It's the 9th century B.C. Uh, not to talk down to you, but B.C., the numbers go down, right? A.D., they start going back up. From 900 to 800 is the 9th century B.C. Right in the middle of that time frame is when we meet Elijah, when he appears on the scene. <clears throat> I brought along a timeline. I know some of you, it helps you kind of see it. Here's 1,000 B.C. in the middle. It has the three big famous kings of Israel, Saul, who wasn't that great, David, who was the greatest king of all, and then David's son, Solomon, they all rule. Following Solomon's rule, the kingdom divides. You have a northern kingdom of Israel. You have a southern kingdom of Judah. Elijah's primarily the, a prophet to the northern kingdom, Israel. What happens after Solomon, and part of this division, is that we get a lot of really bad kings. Uh, in, in, in the southern kingdom, Judah, there's some good ones and some bad ones. In the northern kingdom, Israel, basically all bad. Even the bad ones do some good things, but basically all bad and progressively worse. The more kings we have, the worse it gets for the northern kingdom of Israel until over here in the ninth century, 850 or so B.C., Elijah appears 
when the king is Ahab, and Ahab is the worst king we've seen. Here's how he's described in 1 Kings 16. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So progressively worse, you get to Ahab, he's worse than any king they've ever had. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So not only is he worse than all the other kings, but he marries a wife from another country, a woman named Jezebel. Anybody ever heard of Jezebel? Anybody ever used the term Jezebel? Yeah. Uh, we use the term Jezebel even today to refer to a wicked woman, an immoral woman, a terrible woman. That's not all women, but we still use this term. By the way, if you don't read the Bible, this is one of the reasons you should read the Bible. Many of the terms and phrases we use today, we can trace their origin back to the Bible. This is one of them. We call wicked women Jezebels because of this woman. Ahab's a terrible king. He marries a wicked woman. Now, it had become the practice, thanks in some part to Solomon, that when a king made a treaty with another country, he would marry one of their daughters. Right? This was part of our alliance. Right? It's a terrible way to treat women. Get it. The Bible's not saying it was a good thing. It resulted in terrible things. But this is what was done. Uh, in one way to say, okay, you're not going to attack me because now your daughter lives over here. And I'm not going to attack you because your daughter's over here. We're good. This is exactly what Ahab does. And he marries Jezebel, who is not only wicked and evil, but she worships a god, false god, named Baal. And this is what generates most of her wickedness. You remember in our last series, we talked about how <clears throat> one of the great warnings from God in the Old Testament was, be careful what you worship. Don't let your worship get drawn away from me. And over and over again in the history of the nation, we see that happening. That's exactly what's happening here. Their heart, their worship, their desires are being drawn away. So here's what the kings would do. They would bring in a wife from another country who worshipped another god, and they would build her a little place to worship that other god. We don't worship that other god. Israel worships the one true god. But if you want to worship that other god, here's you a, a little hut or a little room or a little place or a little altar, and you can go do that. And this started happening so much that the worship of the false god began to spread out to other people. It wasn't contained just to Jezebel or just to the wife it started influencing and impacting the nation. This is what sin does. If we could just make an analogy, draw a principle here. Sin never stays contained. When we turn away from God, it never stays in the one little area we're trying to keep it in. And we tend to think that's going to happen. We tend to think, okay, this is just one decision, this is just one time, this is just one thing I have to do, this is one season of my life, it's only going to be one year, it's only this one relationship. 
We fool ourselves in the same way that Israel fooled itself for thousands of years. We fool ourselves into thinking, I can have this little bit of compromise and it not affect all of these other areas in my life. Sin doesn't work that way. Sin never stays put. Sin never stays just in that one little area that I'm trying to keep it contained to. It's always looking for ways to creep into other areas of our life, of our thinking, of our relationship. And sure enough, Jezebel gets to a point where she doesn't just want the worship of Baal to be in addition to Israel's worship. She wants the worship of Baal to take over the worship of God. She wants her false religion to become first and only in the nation, which is exactly what sin tends to do. The sin we excuse eventually wants to take over. The sin we look over, eventually wants to take over. The, comp- the compromise that we make eventually wants to be first. It started out in Israel as just adding a little extra. We call it syncretism, S-Y-N, like sync up. Syncretism is, I'm going to keep most of my belief about God, but I want a little bit of this over here too that isn't exactly what God said. I want to keep worshiping God, but I want a little bit of what this person says, a little bit of that belief, or a little bit of this practice. That's where Israel starts. I want to keep God. I want to keep worshiping God, but I want a little bit of this. And pretty soon this grows and this grows until this demands a choice. Eventually, when we give sin room in our life, it eventually demands a choice. It eventually says, all right, you got to pick me or that. You got to pick me over that I want to be first in your life. I want you to view everything else through this. That's the way sin works. It's just a little excuse. It's just a little compromise. It's just a little giving in. And then it demands everything. The other problem with allowing small areas of sin into our life is that when we replace God's word in one area, what we're really saying is, God, I don't trust you in that area. Yeah, I'm going to give you everything else. I just don't trust you in this area right here. Whenever we allow that compromise, we're saying, God, I don't fully trust you to handle this particular area of my life. This is what Israel's doing. And if you know Israel's history, you can sort of understand. Israel's an agrarian culture, right? They rely on fields and crops and sheep who need pastures. They rely on rain so that crops can grow and so that they can have resources. They also live not just in an agrarian culture, but they live in an agrarian culture where there is a dry season. They know every year we're going to have a hard time at a certain point of the year growing crops, and we sure hope the rain comes back. Baal was believed to be the storm god. He was believed to be the god who brought rain and fertility and new life. So if you're in Israel, there would be a real temptation to say, God, we believe you, but just in case, we want to try this too because he's supposed to bring rain. This is way more than you want to know. The belief was that Baal was the storm god, the rain god, 
but that he would be defeated once a year by a different god by the name of Mot. And that was the dry season. And then a third god would have to defeat Mot and release Baal so that the rains would come back. Which I know sounds bizarre because it is bizarre. It sounds superstitious. It sounds weird. And our temptation is to think, I would never think that way. And yet, those things that are most important to us, those things that weigh on us the most, we can be tempted to say, God, I I trust you, but I also need to trust this over here. God, I believe you, but I just need to cut corners this one time in my business. God, I trust what you have to say about relationships and marriage and sexuality, but I don't want to be single the rest of my life. God, I trust what your word says, but I want to be happy. Nobody's ever going to date me if I do it your way. We have all of these little parts of our life where we say, God, I trust you, but I really want this to work out. And so I'm going to compromise over here because I don't really trust you with this. And oftentimes it is those areas that that concern us the most, that worry us the most, that are on our minds the most, that we're tempted to say, yes, God, but I really want to make sure this works out. Into that scene steps a man by the name of Elijah, a nation that's turned its back on God, a king and a queen that doesn't want anything to do with God, and Elijah walks in. Now, it's important to know that Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. So his name immediately sends the message. Um, All those gods you're talking about, they're not my gods. I'm here and I'm giving notice that Yahweh is my God. If Yahweh is unfamiliar to you, that's the Hebrew word that God gave to Moses when Moses asked, what should, who should we tell everybody is sending us? And God said, tell them, I am. Yahweh, I, am. I exist, I eternally exist, I never change, I am always the same. I am is sending you. The Hebrew term is Yahweh. Elijah's name means Yahweh is my God. Baal's not my God. Mott's not my God. The rainy season's not my God. The dry season's not my God. Nothing is my God except for God. Yahweh is my God. And here's where the story starts in 1 Kings 17. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my Word. Yahweh is my God, and I'm putting everybody on notice. My God's never been defeated. Baal gets defeated every year. Yahweh's never been defeated. Mott gets defeated every year. Yahweh's never been defeated. I represent the God who is never, ever defeated. And to prove it, Elijah says, my God is going to take your God on at the very thing your God's supposed to be good at. You believe that your God will provide rain, my God's going to step in and call all the rain off for the next few years, and He's going to leave it without any doubt that your God is powerless because my God is sovereignly reigning and in control. He's defeated. He will defeat your God 
and your God will be unable to provide the very things that you're calling out for your God to provide because your God is unable to provide. Now, the nation by and large has turned away from God. This is a lone voice in many ways. The king and queen have turned away from God, and yet Elijah is willing to say, I represent the one true God. He's undefeated. He can do what your God can never do. My God will provide. And we need Elijah's today. In in the world that we live in, we need Elijah's who believe Yahweh is God and Yahweh will provide. And I can seek satisfaction. I can seek happiness. I can seek fulfillment in everything else. But the truth is everything else is Baal. Everything else will be defeated. Nothing else can provide for what I need other than my God. We don't have to be arrogant. We we don't have to be obnoxious. We don't have to put our fingers in people's faces. We can just live knowing that our God sovereignly reigns over all things, and He's the only one that provides for our needs, which is what Elijah realizes. Elijah realizes that as he's faithful, God is faithful to provide. Here's the next part of the story. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine. East of the Jordan, you will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food. Everybody else is going to be without. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to give you what you need. You were faithful. I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. Elijah learns that God is not only sovereign over the rain, but he sovereignly provides for those who are faithful. He meets the needs. As a matter of fact, the needs that everybody else wanted met, Elijah found to be met in God because he is the provider of all things. Elijah reminds us, That the God who encourages us to live boldly, to speak boldly, to believe boldly, to pray boldly, is also the God who provides for our needs. Elijah, there's a brook. Birds are going to feed you. You're going to be taken care of. The brook dries up. God comes back and says, I want you to go into town. Elijah meets a widow. If you keep reading chapter 17, Elijah meets a widow. Ask her for a piece of bread. She says, we're almost out of bread. Elijah said, that's fine, fix it, give me part of it, and then your family can eat part of it. And God miraculously, again, supernaturally, provides an endless supply of water for this widow and her son and Elijah. Endless supply of oil for this widow, her son, and Elijah. Endless supply of flour so that they can keep eating. He's the God who provides. He's the God who meets our needs as we are faithful to Him. Now, God didn't provide in excess. God didn't make anybody rich. God doesn't make Elijah popular, right? Elijah wasn't popular. He was provided for. God met him in his need. God made sure he had what he needed. And and let's be honest, God's provision came from strange places. I've never seen any birds bring food to me before. That's That's a strange way to deliver. You got Uber Eats. You got ravens bringing food, whatever. God's providing in, in unusual ways. Met a widow, I'm going to meet your need. God provides in unusual ways. 
Sometimes I think that's why we miss God's provision. Because we have in our mind how God is supposed to provide and sustain us. And God's sending provision, we just... We just overlook it. Maybe a, good, maybe a good activity this afternoon, just when you get a few minutes of quiet, just to sit down and ask yourself, how's God provided for me? Which ravens have come into my life? Which widows? Which strange places has God made sure that my needs were met because we live much of our life with God providing needs and us not even recognizing it? The widow's son gets sick. The chapter 17 says he stops breathing. Elijah steps in. The boy is healed. He comes back to life. She's given back her son. All of these amazing, miraculous, powerful, earth-changing sort of miracles are happening around this one guy named Elijah, which is what makes the commentary about Elijah in the New Testament so unusual. A thousand years after Elijah lives, there's a guy by the name of James. He's the brother of Jesus. And he's writing a letter over in the New Testament. It's in your Bible. You can read it. James is writing a letter, and as he's getting to the end of the letter, he's wanting to say, You need to pray. You need to pray bold, powerful prayers in your life. Here's some of his his discussion in James chapter 5. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call for the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And James is just arguing, like, you need to pray. Is there a need in your life? Pray. Is there a need in the life of somebody you care about? Pray. Because your prayer really matters. Your prayer is powerful. Your prayer is effective. Your prayer can change things. So pray. And sometimes we use prayer more as a, um, more as a hey, I'm thinking about you sort of comment. Hey, I'm praying for you. And, and maybe we mean that and maybe we just mean I hope things get better. Maybe we mean uh, you're going to be on my mind. There's a lot of things we might mean when we say, I'm going to be praying for you. But James says, please take prayer seriously because prayer matters. And then he adds this line. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Pray. Is there a need in your life? Pray. You need God to show up in a big way? Pray. Pray big, bold prayers. And by the way, If you read the story of Elijah and you see miracle after miracle after supernatural after supernatural, let me remind you, he was a human just like you're a human. He wasn't some supernatural hero. His baseball card is not worth more than your baseball card. He was a person just like you and he prayed. 
And he saw God do miraculous things. So in your life, when we have a need, when we need God to perform miracles, we need God to move, James would say, you're just like Elijah. He's not more important than you. He's not more valuable than you. God doesn't listen to Elijah more than he listens to you. Pray. You can pray just like Elijah prayed. Look, I'm not talking about doing magic tricks. I'm not saying go home and pray that it won't rain for three years and God will keep it from rain. I'm not talking about doing magic tricks. You're welcome to pray that fall gets here before next summer. I would... I will be happy if you want to go home and pray. It's supposed to be Tuesday, by the way. Fall's supposed to get here Tuesday, Wednesday. So it's coming. You can go ahead and pray for that. That would be awesome. I, I, I'm not talking about praying for wild, weird things and seeing if God does it. But I'm saying when you have a need, when something's on your heart, when you're burdened, when you're weighed down, when you're concerned for another person, James says you're just like Elijah. You're a person just like he was. So pray boldly, courageously. Call out to God. You don't know what might happen. You don't know how God might intervene. Pray. Because you are just like Elijah. God, burn in us a renewed belief that our prayers matter. Burden us with the conviction that you work powerfully through the prayers of your people. Because at the end of the day, Elijah was a person just like us. And he walked faithfully and he lived faithfully. And he was bold and courageous and he prayed big, bold, courageous prayers And you responded. God, remind us. Remind us that we can call out to you at any time, for any reason. And you hear us. You are listening to us every bit as much as you were listening to Elijah 3,000 years ago. You respond to us. The same way that you responded to Elijah 3,000 years ago. So help us to pray. Help us to take seriously the opportunity to live boldly for you. No matter what's happening around us. No matter who the king is or the president is or the queen is or what the culture is. We can live boldly, faithfully. For the kingdom of God. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.